90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Trying not to freeze. How about yourself? Uh, about the same, you know, <laughs> trying to work off some of those Christmas pounds as heat energy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for bringing all this uh, really cold weather down with you from Pennsylvania, by the way. Super awesome. Oh, I know. <laughs> it just follows me. Uh, yeah, because that um, 65 degrees on Christmas Day was quite nice, I will say. <laughs> yeah, now it's, you know, like 20, maybe. Yeah, 20 something. <laughs> hmm, not cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't have much choice to or much chance to um, heat myself up thermally because I've just been sitting at my desk playing with my new laptop. <laughs> oh, how's that going? Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty good choice. Um, I, everyone in I was nervous, but everyone in the Slack chat room, you know, reaffirmed my choice, and I think it's it's pretty good. The display is pretty impressive. It's really cutely portable. <laughs> Is your screen all smudgy from fingerprints from the touchscreen yet? Look, maybe a little bit, but <laughs> I, I keep a cloth nearby. <laughs> yeah, you've got to. Yeah, exactly. Like, I just can't stop it. I love the touchscreen. It's really, it's really good. So that's what I've been doing. What have you been up to? I have been spending a lot of time sitting in front of the computer as well. Uh, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> you know, that whole trying to finish the giant document that is my dissertation. Oh. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm still not far enough away to want to talk about this, but. Yeah, we're, I have part of one chapter left to write. So chapters one through five and appendices A through G. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, appendices. If anybody needs some, you know, some sleep aid, <laughs> I will make sure that a copy of this, it is going to be publicly available for free uh, once I'm once I'm done. I will make sure you can get a copy because it will knock you right out. <laughs> oh, see, I went for the like least amount of information needed. So that was, uh, I got away without 12 appendices. So that was nice. A lot of these are like standard procedures and things that I've developed where, uh, you know, if you if you do it this way, it's more reproducible or it saves you more time or gotcha. that kind of thing. So a lot of it is writing up procedures with lots of pretty pictures, but all those pretty pictures and write-ups take about 300 pages. That's impressive. It's going to be like 500 yeah. bucks to get bound. You should just keep it digitally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you need doorstops or something in your new house. <laughs> yes, that, that, that could be pretty useful. But I've also been reading listener feedback. You know, it's been a couple weeks since we early recorded last week's show, but we've had some great feedback from folks. We have. Um, we have had a significant amount. I've certainly enjoyed talking Native science with a couple of different people. Um, that's fun. But, man, listener Daryl, he really takes the cake, rubbing it in how cool it is where he lives. <laughs> Yeah, so Daryl is in Australia yeah, and has sent us some pictures of flying around in a plane that he built himself. Mm -hmm. And we will be sharing these over the course of the week on our Facebook and Twitter pages. So go check those out. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. I said one thing about, you know, the one sort of rock formation I knew about and he wrote me all these cool things that I've been looking up and being really jealous of. And then he sends all these cool pictures and talks about riding his bike. And yeah, it, it makes me wish we were there right now. 
Yeah. And he's a ham radio operator. So uh, we yeah. mm-hmm. talked about that some. But he sent in some things about, you know, we talked about airspeed a while back in the mm-hmm. air pressure episode. Mm-hmm. And he said that calibrated airspeed is what's used uh, because we're using a pitot tube. So it's flow right. past a pitot tube. It's a really kind of nasty problem from dynamics two or three, I think. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I know. When I saw pitot, I was like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> Like, I remember those homework problems that were 12 pages long. (laughs) Yeah. So he points out that as you get faster, the pressure is not linearly increasing like you would think. Right, yeah. Uh, But that that really affects things that are faster than most single-engine light planes. Right. uh, Like the one that he built. So that's uh, why he knows. And he also pointed out, you know, we've talked about hectare uh, several times Uh and uh, hectopascals. And how's this for confusing? I'm just going to read this section of his email. In aviation, we use feet for heights, meters for runway distance and visibility, and nautical miles for distances. <laughs> Technically, above 10,000 feet, we use a unit that should be called a hectometer, but is actually called a flight level. For example, FL-300 is 30,000 feet. And some aircraft are calibrated to gallons for fuel. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to save that paragraph and when I get, you know, angry about kids mixing up their units, if any of them just say, but I'm from Australia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. Meters for runway distance and yet nautical miles for. <laughs> and then feet or flight levels. <laughs> I love it. And it's then a, gallons. That's beautiful. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> but Daryl also asked a question at the end of this email and we're actually going to turn it into a short show since we have to be kind of careful of our space limitation for January, <laughs> uh, as we talked about last week. But he said that not being an academic, he doesn't really know the process for how higher degrees work. He says he wouldn't mind going back to uni, but he doesn't know how the higher degrees work and what the colloquium that we talk about all the time is, <laughs> what the PhD requirements are, and so on. And unfortunately, I'm going to say that it all varies everywhere, (laughs) and it's not even consistent within the U.S., but I thought it'd be fun to talk about how the U.S. system works from our perspective. Right. This is sort of something that I don't think we ever thought we would talk about because we assumed that our listenership would just be our friends and colleagues, hopefully. (laughs) But um, even better than that, we've gotten all these listeners who might not understand this and since it is the world that we both have lived in forever it we can throw around words like colloquium without really realizing that people might not understand what that is right (laughs) um i will say that grad school applications were a long time ago for me they were pretty long ago for you too so some of this information may have changed yeah i mean we're not quite in the days of mimeographing it but uh (laughs) i definitely had a lot of paper forms that i know don't exist anymore (laughs) yeah so we let's see that i guess we'll start out with the typical undergrad process here for bachelor of science in the u.s is four years right and once you get through that then in your last year you take the graduate record exam yes which has changed at least three times since i took it and probably at least twice since i did yeah Yeah, so (laughs) And 
Then you fill out a bunch of applications, write some lovely essays about why the university you're applying to is the best university, just like every other one you applied to. <laughs> yeah, make sure you change those uh, find and replace in those letters. <laughs> right. And you send these off. They get reviewed by a committee. And at least for me, the universities that accepted you would bring you out for kind of an in-person site visit interview. Right. Um, I think just to back up just a, a skosh here, um, when you're looking for a grad school, you know, you want to go on with whatever thing you found interesting in undergrad. Um, and the best way to do that, I mean, it's obviously the Internet, is you just get on there and look up stuff. But before you write these letters, before you do anything, you really need to contact professors at that university. Yes. So that's really the most important part. It's not your personal statement <laughs> no, as much as, yeah. you know, they want you to think it is. Um, because how we admit grad students and being on the other side of the, the other side of the desk now, um, I see this is that you have to have somebody sort of speak up for you and say, yes, we want to evaluate this person. Not that this person's in or anything like that, because as John just said, it's by committee. But before you're even considered... If you haven't contacted someone, you don't even get a seat at the table, really. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's also good because you know there's somebody that you want to work with. Right. It's not, you know, in grad school, you're generally studying some subfield, not just geology or geophysics in general. So you want to know that there's somebody at the university that does what you want to go into. Right. And and this is where it's not the same at every university because I know here – we have to say this person I'm interested in being considered for admissions, but some schools actually let you in without having sort of an advisor already. But I, I think that's more the exception than the rule. Yeah, I know there are a few, I think MIT, uh, Woods Hole, a few places like that where for your first year you're floating around. Right, exactly. Yeah. The university of Tulsa is like that too. Um, so you just, you have to know, what type of school you're going into because you can be a super well-qualified candidate, but if you haven't contacted anyone and they don't know your interest, then you might not even get considered, which would be a shame if that's a really good place for you. Um, so that's a, that's really the most important part. And it, it really matters how you compose these emails to professors. <laughs> it really matters. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, I had a complete this was, sentences. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was just a, a student in one of my classes that I was teaching. And I tried, I don't know if you can tell, I'm sure you can. I'm not too terribly pretentious. <laughs> and so I don't care if my students are like Dr. Doolin or say things like this. But the email said, Hey, yo, Shan. <laughs> <laughs> and then proceeded to ask a question about missing class. <laughs> So I would not suggest that you start any email off like that. Did you respond with emoji? Oh, man. Um, well, they didn't have that emoji on <laughs> the one I wanted anyway. Um, that's, it's a surefire way for you, your email to be deleted, like 100%. That's exactly what I did. I will not respond to that. And I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you, you get a lot of really automated letters, and you can tell... Oh, yes. The automated, like, I am interested in your research. Okay, that doesn't say anything. <laughs> like, you need to go in and 
read some papers by these professors and really sort of understand what their focus is because we're all susceptible to flattery. We all want to know that you've looked up our webpage and all that other jazz. And it also shows that you're committed. And that's the big, that's a big thing that you need to prove is your commitment to graduate school. Right. And working uh, with these people to try to arrange a meeting that, you know, like a lot of them will fly you out at some point right. mm-hmm. if you get far in the process. But this is where something like saying, I'm going to be at AGU and, you know, GSA this year. Are you going to be at either of those meetings? Let's get coffee. Yes. Because yep. then it's no cost to them. It takes 10 minutes of their time and you're both much more comfortable with moving forward. Right. Exactly. And that's something we definitely do. I mean, we do it with interviewees and we do it all day long with grad students and it's the perfect venue for that you know you're already in the academic mindset because you're at this meeting and it makes it really easy to interact and you know you may think somebody is the perfect fit for you and then you meet them in person and even though their interests are exactly aligned with yours you need to be able to work with this person because you're there for two years for a master's or four to five years for your phd so you need to mesh at least a little bit. <laughs> yes, definitely true. <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a big deal, um, and it's a great it's a great usage of your time and money if all you do is go to one of these meetings just to meet with ten graduate schools. Yes, and when you go to the university, if you go to the next step, uh, don't just visit with them. You know, go meet students at these meetings. Go find students that have worked with them and ask them. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a big deal, too. But also, you know, go around the campus, go to the library, and see if there are people actually, you know, working in the library or if there are people playing Farmville <laughs> in the library. And try to get a feel for the campus environment because that's where you're going to be for a while. And you want to be a place that you feel comfortable and intellectually stimulated. Yes. And that's the difference between grad school and undergrad too. I mean, not to diminish undergrad at all, because it's very hard, (laughs) especially if you're doing two different bachelor's degrees. And and, I mean, not an easy one like geophysics and meteorology, but if you're doing two hard (laughs) ones like geology and meteorology. Um, But I mean, grad school is truly your job more so than it is as an undergrad. And so you spend twice as much time. You know, you're going to have an office. You're going to spend all your time there. The library in your building, if you're lucky enough to have a great library like we do. Stuff like that. So, yeah, that it makes a bigger difference, I feel like, for graduate school than undergrad. And this is another place where it really varies, not only between schools, but between programs. You said that grad school is your job. In many places, you're paid a living stipend, uh, and then in many other fields, you're not. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, this is a this is a big difference between the sciences and the arts. I feel like in graduate school. I mean, I have a few friends that did, um, you know, fine art stuff, and their stipends were not very large, and it was a it was a lot different environment, even at the same university. Because, you know, we come in and if you're lucky, you get a TA ship. But that means for master students, that means three labs a week. 
Right. And while it's the same three labs, and that's fine, and that's not unusual, it's still a lot of time and a lot of students to deal with. And, you know, you really have to, and you still have all your own personal research you need to be doing at the same time. So there's that as well. Yeah, and I mean, in at least in our department, I don't think pretty much anybody is paying to go to grad school. We have a, we have a few students that pay to go to grad school, and that's one of those things where if your grades aren't good enough to be considered for a TA, because you know the TA ships are pretty competitive because it's the school paying your way, and so that's a big deal. Um, but even if you're coming in and you don't need funding, you still have to have a professor sponsor you. Right. So even if you're like, nope, I'm just going to pay for myself. I don't want to be beholden to anything. Well, you still have a professor sponsoring you, and you still have work to do. It's still your job, even if you're not getting paid. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a it's a big time commitment, but I think it, well, obviously I think it's worth it. <laughs> right, me too. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the time commitment and the mental commitment is different for a master's versus a PhD. It is, and I think it's probably difficult to choose where you should go a lot of times. Right. Some schools require you to get a master's before a PhD. Yes. OU being one of those. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penn State was not, so I have a bachelor's and will soon have a PhD, but no master's in between. Sorry, guess I got you beat there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you'll have an extra piece of paper. Uh, yeah. Because um. I I didn't, and I could have, it would have added a little bit of time on uh, to go through the master's process. But at that time, I was comfortable enough saying, yeah, this is what I want to do, and I can do this for another few years. Right. That I was, I felt secure enough going on to get a PhD. But if you have any doubt that a PhD is not for you, do the master's first. Right, exactly. And I know some programs basically, um, and this was a while back, but some programs you sort of have to. You're enrolled in the Ph.D. program, but there's a couple of extra sort of steps. And so if you don't pass, it's not necessarily your qualifying exams, but it's something like that. Um, Then you sort of get kicked down to the master's level. Right. So that happens. And this is not to disparage a master's degree. No, at all, not at all. Because I think for a lot of positions, it's about the right level. Uh, with a PhD, you know, you and I both have very specific sub sub disciplines. Yes. Yeah. That we studied. Uh, you know, like I studied frictional mechanics of a specific type of earthquake under the umbrella of earthquake physics. Right which is pretty far from a general geophysics degree that I did as an undergraduate. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I would say that unless that's really what you want to be the world's expert in, because when you're a PhD, that's what you will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the master's is kind of the right level for a more advanced, but still more well-rounded education in the field. And for, I mean, I could speak to you specifically petroleum geology and geophysics i mean the master's degree is the terminal degree you're not you're very rarely not you're not but you're very rarely going to get a job as a petroleum geologist or geophysicist without a master's degree virtually nowhere so everyone sort of 
it's interesting because I feel like everyone assumes, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and go to grad school, you know, and this is where it does, <laughs> it is a little important how well you do as an undergrad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, you know, that's, um, that's a big deal, especially if you're trying to go somewhere different. I mean, I got all my degrees from the same university, so I can't speak a lot to this, but um, if you're going somewhere different, it's the first thing people look at. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they look at the transcript. And yeah. it doesn't have to be flawless, because my undergraduate transcript certainly wasn't. Oh, no, mine mine either. I took, I liked Calc 3 so much, I took it twice. <laughs> yeah, that, that was PMath um, for me. But uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be flawless, but it has to show that you're a hard worker in the field. Right, exactly. And it, it we definitely don't, penal well... Like I said, I'm speaking to our university. I feel like we don't penalize you as much for messing up in the beginning, but as you get more towards your senior year, you know, if you say, okay, well, they've got a really good GPA in their field, stuff like that um, right. matters a lot. It does. And, you know, did you take the underwater basket weaving elective or did you go ahead and take an extra math course? See, we actually have a lot of discussion about this, which... <laughs> It's probably a, a, a different show, <laughs> but that's interesting because um, there's a lot of programs. Uh, the meteorology program has gone to this, too. Uh, when you and I went through it, although not at the same time, um, there was not a lot of room for electives, speaking of underwater basket weaving. <laughs> and no, it was pretty much set in stone yes. what you were going to do. Yeah, basically, like if you wanted to take any blow-off class, it was like, You've got this one class, this one semester, and that's it. Um, and now they've actually backed off of that, and they've opened up a lot more free electives to students to try to make them more well-rounded, which I think is an interesting discussion to have about, you know, this laser focus and maybe students are getting burned out versus getting this more well-rounded education, and how does that make you a better scientist? I think there's a lot to be said for a well-rounded education, if I walk to the other side of the table, I can also say that grad school does a very good job at increasing your aspect ratio and making you very oblong. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so maybe the right place to try to get some of that roundness is in undergrad. Uh -huh. And you can do it in grad school. You just have to it's, <laughs> it's harder. break out of the, <laughs> the mold of you're going to take these four classes that you know right your advisor or your advisor's friend teaches right yeah <laughs> that and never then the happens times research <laughs> um so that's another point the difference between a master's and a phd program um is basically just at our university it's just hours uh, you have to have 30 hours for your master's and 90 for your phd and for the master's there are some things we have certain sort of core areas you know you have to take a, a sedimentology class you have to take two outside geology sciences stuff like that but the phd has zero prerequisite requirements you just need 60 more hours on top of your master's degree essentially with not much is laid out for you at all it's very open we are too. You have to have, like, we have categories of courses that you have to have. So everybody has to take this course called Issues in Geosciences, ah, okay. which is sort of a intro to grad school ah, okay. type course. Uh, then 
you have to take, uh, for example, a quantitative analysis course. It could be for math, it could be from geoscience, it could be from engineering, whatever. It has to be quantitative. You have to take a course that involves data collection. Uh, you have to take a course that is in a subfield. And you have to take a course that's in a subfield that's not yours. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I took a fault mechanics class. I took a glaciology class. I took a, a genetic and evolutionary algorithms class. And I don't remember what I did for my data gathering. Uh, but I ended up taking way more courses than I actually needed to, just because uh -huh. I thought they were interesting yeah. until it was to the point of stop taking classes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard because, I mean, you're still paying for hours, but now you're just paying for research hours, which feels crappy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> I remember that. There was basically no more classes I could take because I'd already taken everything that we offered here. So. <laughs> right. So that is one big difference. And I think a lot of the people that come in for a master's, there's sort of a funded project in mind. Right. Of, you know, we have this project. Here's this section of it that needs done. And your job is to do this. Yes. Uh, whereas with a PhD, a lot of times there's some funded project but it's here's this larger, more ambiguous thing. Mm -hmm. Make something Figure out. Figure out the interesting parts. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then do that. Oh, uh. That's exactly right. But I mean, but that is the difference because when you're getting your PhD, you need to demonstrate even more so than with your master's that you have the ability to work independently. Because as you mentioned earlier, John, the PhD as a terminal degree is kind of a really narrow skill set. It really is. Yeah. And I think the basis of that skill set is that you can do big boy and girl stuff by yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. That you are able to dive into a field that you don't know, read the literature, learn it, and then make a worthwhile contribution. Yep. Uh, that's a big word that gets thrown around a whole lot, worthwhile contributions to the field, um, which is one of our sort of learning objectives for the PhD program in general when we analyze students at the end um that's one of the things we ask about so that's yeah is you know exactly why it. did why did what you do justify you spending five years of your life and this is where people start to have a breakdown yeah uh, <laughs> and all of this taxpayer money you know to find three different ways to tie your shoelaces yeah this probably not a worthwhile contribution uh, so you want to make sure that the piece of the problem that you're carving off is interesting. So I remember this very vividly between my master's and PhD because I went straight from my two undergrads to my master's and then I worked for five years and came back for my PhD. And I vividly remember in my master's being so afraid, like I wouldn't even put that on paper. You know, the first thing is like, why is your work important? And I was so afraid to make the statement why my work was important because I just didn't feel like I was confident enough to make that statement. And it was something that leaving academia for a while and having to work a real job <laughs> and then coming back for my PhD, it made it a lot easier. And it was very interesting um, to me, the mindset difference, which I mean, you know, five years out in the real world versus coming back, that's, that was a big difference to me. You know, I was 30 when I came back for my PhD, no, well, 29, no, 30. And so it's like, I felt like I was a lot older, but I also had a lot more like life experience and it made it 
easier for me. So I think few people, you know, like you just went straight into your PhD. I think few people have that discipline like you do that you need to stick with the PhD. So if you're questioning it at all, you should take time off. (laughs) That's my point. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a gap year is not a bad idea. Right. Just to absorb some experiences, decompress a little bit. Yeah. Uh, from from undergrad and try to figure out is this what you want to go into and, you know I knew that geophysics and earth science is what I wanted to stay in right uh, and and it's like you're moving on in, although not to a faculty job you're still with you know an NSF institution right involved in academia um, <laughs> after my master's because you know we published a couple of papers out of my master's and like I'd been in school for eight years <laughs> at that point straight well been in college for eight years straight and I went and I got a job as a dog walker and a barista at a local <laughs> not at Starbucks <laughs> like a real barista we had tests and everything it was really hardcore at this locally owned coffee shop nice. and so I have three degrees and I was by far not the most educated person that worked there <laughs> Oh, yeah. So this yeah. whole gap year thing is really not unusual, and I almost feel like it should be a forced thing that happens because, I mean, that was the best. I loved walking those dogs and working at that coffee shop with my three very hard science degrees. Right. Well, and then, so once you finish grad school, uh, a lot of people go on to what's called the postdoc, mm-hmm. which is a position where you're kind of in between being a student and a big person researcher. It really has to be the worst thing ever. (laughs) Uh, Generally, the postdoc pay is relatively low. You're working on somebody else's project, a lot of times helping or supervising undergrads and graduate students. But you're using it as some filler while you're trying to find a faculty position and get some grants of your own funded. Right. But what people want to see is is the key is that last part is that while you're still working on this project that somebody else is helping them do all this other stuff, you still have to. The postdoc is the time where you prove your independence as a researcher. Right. Which is hard to do because you're still working on <laughs> you know, somebody else's project. But that's the collaborative nature of science, too. But it is a weird in-between. And it's like some people just get stuck in the postdoc loop, and they just have postdoc after postdoc, which makes it harder to get a job because people wonder why you've got all these postdocs. Because that... generally a postdoc lasts about two years. Right, right. Some uh, of them are one, but that's more rare. Some are one, some are more, some are renewable, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, but yeah, they're they're kind of an in-between position because – Faculty jobs don't open up all that often. Especially if you're looking for a very narrow sort of, you know, gap to fill fill there. Right. So, for example, a paleomagnetist or rock mechanicist. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're both pretty specific and mm-hmm. pretty specialized. Right. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to find the appropriate position. Once you find that position and you apply for it, let's say you get it and you are now, I think they're generally called associate in most places now. Is that the? Assistant. Assistant professor. You start off as assistant, which the downfall of being an assistant professor is that you actually get emails from students' parents asking to talk to the real professor. (laughs) Right. Not kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> and in this stage, you're you're teaching, you're trying to build a group of graduate students, you're trying to publish like crazy, you're trying to get grants funded, because you're still not done proving yourself. No, <laughs> no, uh, nope. That's tenure. That's tenure. Which after you've been an assistant for a while, you come up for tenure review and you need to show that you have yet again made that significant or worthwhile contribution, that you've brought money into the university, uh, that you successfully mentored graduate students, that you've taught classes and can do so coherently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's generally a very rough time. Uh, it really is. Um, you no one ever looks at this fondly and i i do not have a tenure track position my my position is rank renewable which i've been explained you know the reason for that is like where the money comes from right tenure track positions are hard hard money because if you get tenure that's it you're there for life basically um right and so every five years i come up for renewal um and i like it i like it a lot better <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, in a lot of in a lot of universities, you get treated like you're not really a professor, but I'm an assistant professor, just like anybody else that starts at the university. Um, and just because you get tenure, you know, that doesn't mean you get knocked up. Associate is the next one, um, and then full professor. So I can still do that, even though I'm not tenure track. And it's really the best thing for me because I focus on teaching, which is what I like to do. And while I do research. I have four graduate students. Um, I don't have to, which is nice. <laughs> right. And this is where we could go on, and it's probably a, another show yeah. <laughs> uh, about where the system is sort of breaking down right now uh, yes. because there are so many people in the field. You know, like we say in the intro, 90% of all scientists <laughs> that have ever been alive are alive today. And the system is sort of having some problems with that. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely agree with that, and that is probably a larger. We need an education expert on to talk about that, so we'll we'll keep on the lookout for that because that's something pretty interesting to talk about, especially today. I feel like um, so that's. Right. But there are a lot of the point is there's a lot of different ways to still be involved with academia and not being on the quote normal unquote tenure track. Right. I so. mean, there are there are people that are just pure researchers, that mm -hmm. are people that focus on teaching. There are, you know, like your position, that are renewable. Um, there's all kinds. Of, there's organizations. IRIS would be one for the geosciences. Mm -hmm. uh, UNAVCO, uh, all these places that are organizations that work to support science and are NSF funded. Right. Uh, Unidata, where I'll be working. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, there's a lot of niches to fill because there's a lot of stuff that has to happen to keep science moving forward. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's not just it's not just you know professor at a university. That's all you have to do with this PhD. There's a lot of different options. I know we sort of made it sound like it was super specialized, and it is. But there's still something to be said for getting your PhD if that's what you want to do. And there. And there are a lot of people that get their PhD in one discipline, and then when they go on the tenure track, completely switch disciplines. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or once you get tenure, you basically completely do something 
different as well. Right. Uh, <laughs> Which is the fun so part. So that's, that's not out of the question at all. Yes. Yes. But that's, that's sort of the academic job cycle, but we still haven't answered the question of what <laughs> is colloquium. <laughs> oh, I find it funny that I love to talk about it because sometimes it's awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so lots of um, departments will have a weekly or bi-weekly, monthly colloquium. And these colloquia are just where you invite somebody, generally. The good ones are when you invite somebody from outside. <laughs> and you have them come talk for an hour and you eat cookies and drink coffee. It's the way that people with elbow patches say the word seminar. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Yes, if you have elbow patches, you say seminar colloquium. It's the correct pronunciation. It's it's, so it's a talk. It's so true. Yeah, that's all it is. It's a talk. You go and um, listen to somebody talk about their specific scientific expertise. And like I said, the best part is the cookies by far. And yeah, that's all it is. It's fun because I think it's fun because it usually involves every aspect of the department all the way from freshmen because we require our scholarship students to go. So we have freshmen, all the grad students are supposed to go. And then generally you get a fair smattering of professors and then some of the research um, faculty will come as well. So it's a nice time for all of your department to get together. It's sort of an extended fun paper Friday because it's always on some different facet of the field. And sometimes it's somebody that you wanted to come give a talk. Mm-hmm. So they're on your specific thing. But a lot of times it's somebody else's person that's coming to give a talk. And it's on a topic that you would probably never go sit down in that person's office and talk to them about unprovoked. Exactly. Um, for undergraduates, the bonus is to see how academia works because colloquia are pretty much ubiquitous. The timing of them is different, but the existence of them (laughs) is ubiquitous. And you learn so much simply by watching other people speak. Oh, yes. (laughs) Not only about the science, but you can learn all kinds of things about speaking. Yes. Uh, That's really what I was talking about, just about speaking and presentation styles, because you can be the most boring speaker and have the coolest research, and nobody cares about your research because you cannot present it. Yes. And you can have the most boring research, but if you're engaging and fun, nobody cares <laughs> because and it's so can, cool. And you can make a list of speaking do's and don'ts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, from these over the years. <laughs> you know, I was at a talk recently where I actually saw yellow text on a white slide ah, yeah. for the entire talk and nobody could read it. Mm-hmm. And I thought the projector was broken until they finally had a picture and the picture was just fine. Oh, I've seen uh, red on red, man. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things you see it and you're like, okay, mental note, I'm never going to do that. Right, exactly. Uh, there are other speakers that are so good, they blow your mind. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we try to snag them to come on this show. Oh, man, I remember we had a we had a paleontology <laughs> one, and obviously I make fun of paleontology a lot, so. <laughs> but he was the coolest speaker ever. Like, I didn't give one care in the world about Eurypterids. Now I love him. He made me love those dumb little creepy fossils. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so cool. It was just, he was so engaging and his story was so interesting. And it just, it really, sh- it shapes how I teach going to these different colloquium. That's for sure. 
Yeah, it's sort of like when you're an undergrad and you have, you know, those one or two favorite professors that made you interested in their, yep. their class. Yep, exactly. Even though it was something that you didn't think you would have any any interest in at all, which is how, you know, I mean, that's what I strive for in intro geology is that I know 99% of the people in my class, they're just there because they have to take this class. So I'm going to make it interesting for them. So that's always, that's the bigger thing out of colloquium than just the, uh, just the topics really. Right. So, so Daryl, that's the, uh, <laughs> the 35 minute version yeah. of <laughs> Of the answer to your question. Hopefully that was useful. Like I said, I don't know. I do know somebody from our department uh, went to Australia and did a PhD, and the process was significantly oh, different. yeah. Between Europe and the U.S., I mean, most European PhDs are three years, which sounds awesome. <laughs> Strictly limited to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So uh, uh, <laughs> that's... T- but this is the system as it sits here from our viewpoint anyway. Right. Um, you should always look at any any university employs tons of people that are there just to answer these kind of questions, and you should make them work for their money. <laughs> yes, the career services office or somebody like that. Right. E- uh, exactly. Is a great place to start. Yeah, and because they'll they'll know exactly what to tell you and the ins and outs of that exact university, and you shouldn't be afraid to contact them because that's what they want. So. And they will be so excited that you actually exactly. did it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that you didn't go ahead and do all the paperwork and make lots of work for everybody and then say, oh, that's not the right fit. Right, exactly. Um, so like I said, this is their exact jobs. So definitely you're not wasting anyone's time by inquiring. So you should do that. Anybody should do that that is even remotely interested. Yes. But I think we should move on for our not-so-short show. Uh, <laughs> You know, we have all these good intentions, and then we sit down. Oh, we do. (laughs) But to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. (laughs) No bells today. My kid's asleep right next door, so I can't cowbell it. (laughs) Yeah, we better not do that. uh Uh, So this is a paper that was sent in by former guest of the show, Nick Holshue. <laughs> and if so you don't good. remember, he talked to us about going to Antarctica. Nick was our first guest, wasn't he? I think he was. Yeah, that was exciting. Ooh. Yeah. That was a while back. It was a while back. <laughs> we'll have to check in with him again because I know he has uh, moved on to a different position and is ah. doing some really cool stuff. Awesome. But he sent this paper in, once again, from one of our favorite places, BMJ. Oh, man. Uh, parachute use to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge a systematic review of randomized controlled trials by smith and pell i can't even i can't even like bring up the paper and look at it without just dissolving into it's so good so this paper was written not so much as a study but as a um commentary <laughs> so, on the state of observational-based medicine, evidence-based medicine. Right. This is really great. Um, <laughs> I can't. I'm oh, sorry. Hold on a second. <laughs> it's so funny. It was so unexpected and hilarious. <laughs> um, so we don't know a lot about this, but in all the medical papers that we wind up reading, you know, the the highest form of of research is a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial. 
right? That's what everybody wants in the medical field in terms of testing whatever you're trying to test. And so these authors are calling for <laughs> um, that, well, they say, you know, that we love BMJ because of the way their stuff is laid out. So the abstract has, you know, the objectives, which is determine whether parachutes are effective in preventing major trauma related to this <laughs> gravitational challenge. <laughs> um, and so they were looking for studies showing the effects of using a parachute during freefall. They were going to measure the outcome of death or major trauma, defined as an injury severity score greater than 15. <laughs> but they were unable to identify any randomized controlled trials of parachute intervention. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, you know, I think sort of the point here is evidence-based medicine is very good when it's practical, but a blind application of it and saying all things must follow this new paradigm is not practical and in some cases is very harmful. <laughs> if we have very good basis from past experience for saying that this treatment is effective, why do we need to subject people to a placebo trial where they will very likely suffer ill consequences just to be able to statistically prove it? Right, exactly. Which was a new word that I learned in here. The aatrogenic complications. Oh, yes, from uh, of treatment or from treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I looked that one up too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> what they say in here, in the conclusions, which I thought this was great, oh, is God. we think that everyone might benefit if the most radical protagonists <laughs> of evidence-based medicine organized and participated in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. <laughs> in other words, they should jump out of airplanes without parachutes. Exactly. Well, I mean, they could have a backpack. They just don't know if there's a parachute in there or not. <laughs> yeah, how would you like to do that? You jump out of the plane... You pull the cord on your backpack and just a bunch of silverware comes out or something. Uh, it's all those spoons that were missing from the, <laughs> from <laughs> the, yeah, the all the spoons from area. that Australian Institute. <laughs> yep. Um, it's so great because they go through and, I mean, they write this paper. Right? <laughs> they have a literature search, where they're going to search for all this literature, where it should be, <laughs> you know, what the definition of their outcomes are, how they're – meta-analysis is going to work, what statistical methods they're going to use. And then, there was... and then, and then come the, comes the result <laughs> section, which is one sentence. It's beautiful. Our search strategy did not find any randomized controlled trials of the parachute. <laughs> and then the discussion. Uh, oh, man, yeah. it is so great. And this is where it gets real because they're really saying, hey, you know, just like you said earlier, maybe we don't need to subject everything to this ridiculous sort of standard. Yeah, I mean, do we need do we need to very likely kill people to prove statistically that something is going to work when we know it has? Right, exactly. Because they point out in here that there have been people who have overcome gravitational challenges of more than 33,000 feet and still lived, so... Just, right. just so because maybe, you don't have one, a parachute doesn't mean you're going to die. Maybe we've been lulled into this false sense that we need parachutes. I love it that they attribute to the healthy cohort effect because people that are not <laughs> um, pre-existing psychiatric morbidity 
who do not have pre-existing psychiatric morbidity are likely <laughs> members of a healthy cohort and therefore are more likely to use parachutes. And so that could be a bias in the data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> the, um, the last paragraph is titled, A Call to, parentheses, Broken Arms. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was amazing, too. <laughs> okay, so but yeah, it, earlier in that, in the section, the medicalization of freefall, uh, they talk about this, you know, the doctors were, were lulled into this sense that we need parachutes. They say, it is often said that doctors are interfering monsters obsessed with disease and power who will not be satisfied until they, they control every aspect of our lives. Citation, Journal of Social Science, pick a volume. <laughs> That's beautiful. That is what it says verbatim. That's so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really mean jab, but also hysterical. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so good. Um, um, this is a great logic argument, this paper. It is. I'm very curious what the reviewer comments were on this because there are commentary papers or commentary articles that often get posted as letters, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is in the actual papers section um and it, like you said it's pretty sharp <laughs> yeah it, it really is this is pretty interesting um just just to quote one more so the last the last two sentences where they come back to this whole thing of you know we don't have to do all these ridiculous trials um and it says the dependency we have created in our population may make recruitment of the unenlightened masses to such a trial difficult Right. If so, we feel assured that those who advocate evidence-based medicine and criticize use of interventions that lack an evidence base will not hesitate to demonstrate their commitment by volunteering for a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled crossover trial. Yep. <laughs> and the the contributors do a, a cute little back and forth um, calling each other out about this dumb idea of the paper they had. One had the original idea. The other tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> One of them deleted all the best jokes. <laughs> yeah. One of them says it serves him right. Yep. Uh, it, this is fantastic. BMJ is my favorite go-to journal. It has nothing to do with anything I do, but I'm going to... I actually have already picked out next week's Fun Paper Friday from BMJ. And I, I don't know how we have not stumbled onto this one before but i'm really glad that nick sent it into us oh uh, yeah absolutely it's spectacular <laughs> so um, if you have an idea for fun paper friday or something you'd like us to talk about uh, which you know these last several shows have been things that folks have said hey we're interested in this or we don't understand this and we've got a couple more lined up already yeah also some guests that people have said i'd like to hear somebody on to talk about this specific thing we're happy to do it. So just drop us a line and let us know what's on your mind. Shannon, how can they do that? Uh, you can send us an email or, as always, an audio comment, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Let's make this show short. <laughs> It'll only be half an hour. <laughs> 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 <laughs>